Good morning, everyone, and welcome to uh, our Saturday lecture, which is going to be uh, given by our longtime student, Peter Overton. Uh, Peter came to Berkeley Zen Center's original home on Dwight Way a half a century ago to study with Soja Roshi. Uh, he was one of the original bakers at Tassahara Bakery and uh, became a baker at Acme Bakery and has baked uh, annual birthday cake for Buddha on Buddha's birthday celebrations. Uh, Peter lives in, in the neighborhood with his wife, Susan, and, and they have two children. He was uh, a real estate uh, appraiser and a um, speaker of the Dharma and teacher to many. Uh, Peter received Dharma transmission from Soja Roshi a few years ago. And today, along with three other preceptors, he will be giving uh, precepts to Diane Ritchie, his student. Please welcome Peter. And thank you so much for coming today. Thank you, Rose. You're welcome. Good morning, everyone. It's a, uh, a fine, cool morning. And uh, with the prospect of some sunshine later this afternoon, and um, also with the prospect of this wonderful ceremony that we're going to enact today, uh, lay ordination, giving and receiving of precepts, um, otherwise known as Zaiku Tokudo or the Jukai, which will take place in the Zendo this afternoon at 3 p.m. and all are welcome to join us as this is a joining of of Sangha in deep relationship. And uh, unfortunately in-person participation and in-person attendance will be limited to the, the ordinees and their, their special guests. But everyone else is, is welcome to join on Zoom and we look forward to seeing all of you. Uh, so this year's ceremony has been long awaited, as you probably know. Um, the occurrence of COVID put off things for quite a while. And so now we have a number of uh, ordinaries, which is wonderful. Uh, I'm just gonna read their names. Uh, Nick Robinson, Heather Sarantis, Joe Buckner, Yoni Ackerman, Helen Chang, Nathan Britton, Philip Sherrard, Diane Ritchie, and Tenacity Bartholomew. And the preceptors will be uh, Ozan Allen Sanaki, or Abbott, Jerry Oliva, Ryushin Andrea Thatch, and myself. So what is happening here? Um, often we recite, recite precepts and vows as part of our ordinary daily practice. This is a little different. Um, this is about recognizing and celebrating um, 
intimate interrelatedness in the Sangha and recognizing the effort and, and goodwill of all of the ordinees. They've done a lot of, of they've done a lot of work, study sewing a raksu, which I'll get into later. And um, So precepts such as um, 16 Bodhisattva precepts. are sort of about how we conduct our relationships with self or others. There's some, some way in which we um, in which we relate to ourselves. How, how do we want to uh, act, speak, move about, make choices in our lives? And then also, how do we relate to other people's activities? How is it? Uh, how are we? Further engage in relationship with others. One important point about the ceremony is that this is the giving of precepts, the formal giving of precepts in such a way as that they are completely given and cannot be, cannot be returned, cannot be given back. <laughs> so ceremony, ceremony is a way of intimate, of sharing an intimate moment with each other. And sort of what is this moment? The ordinaries show up completely and are, are invited to vow to do an impossible task, which none of us know how to do. We come together to recognize each other in our commitment and love of the practice of not knowing, which is most intimate. This is one of the many ways in which our Sangha supports everyone by creating and enabling and acting ways for us to support each other. And how do we support each other in the ceremony? By bearing witness, by seeing the ordinaries, by hearing them, by sharing the same space, breathing the same air. The ceremony begins with an invocation, inviting all of the Buddhas of the past, present, and future to join us in this space followed by an avowal by the ordinaries of their past unwholesome karma. This is an acceptance of mistakes and otherwise 
unwise actions, or choices. In some sense, it's about clearing the, the air for the purposes of giving and receiving precepts. One forgives oneself for, by abandoning any idea of improving your past while staying connected to what you most deeply care about. Next, there's a ritual purification performed by the abbot of the space and all of the participants and guests, and by extension, the whole of the present moment, whatever it is included, including all of you folks on Zoom, you're all part of the same space and you're helping create a ceremony. Next part of the ceremony is to your knees receive the free refuges and the precepts from the preceptors. This is a little different from uh, the usual recitations we have in other ceremonial settings. Um, such as the full moon ceremony where we chant the precepts. This is um, this is the ordinaries stating their deepest intention in front of everybody, out loud. It's an enactment of the of a shift in relationship on several levels between practitioner and precepts between. Ordinary and Sangha between now and some other moment. As part of the, um, in addition to receiving the uh, precepts, your needs will receive a new name. And uh, meant to convey the preceptor's sense of each person, followed by a Dharma name, pointing to a direction or path of potential growth. You'll also receive a Raksu like this, this garment here. And which they have sewn, each of them, It takes a long time. 
Every time the needle goes into the cloth, the ordinee recites, I take refuge in Buddha. Plunging in wholeheartedly. How many stitches? Who knows? One of the things that is encountered by doing this practice of sewing is that it's very precise and there's always the uh, impulse arising to want to get it really right. Want to make sure it's done perfectly. Or, well, there's no, there's no real correcting of stitches. You throw yourself into it. You do the best you can. And accept that. As in, as in life itself. So the number of stitches probably is about the number of good reasons for not going down the rabbit hole of perfectionism. So how do we practice these precepts that we've been getting, we've been given? It's true for all of us, this question. Without getting caught in some sort of dualistic interpretation, like I'm forgetting them, I'm a bad Buddhist. Any number of things you can think of. So, without trying to build up your self-image or cut yourself down or uh, falling into self-evaluation. We simply take on this practice. We simply resolve to do this practice. We keep trying to do something, to create something that won't go away. But uh, this project is always doomed to failure because of impermanence, everything changes. I want to say a little bit of something about impermanence. I've been thinking about that a lot. Our experience, well, my conclusion after thinking about it for a while is that impermanence, our experience of impermanence is how we know that we are alive. And, um, there's really nothing other than impermanence. It's just, you can't get outside of it. Change is the substance of our life. If you can uh, use the word substance. So it's not as though 
There's no point to practice. Our teacher Suzuki Roshi used to say, I'm told. We are already enlightened, but we can use some improvement. So to hold the improvement side, the effort side, lightly. Dogen emphasized that we are fundamentally awakened, but we need to practice in order to realize that, to bring that alive. So just do your best to live for the benefit of all beings and leave the rest to Buddha. Just to do this precept practice is to examine your actions in the light of your aspirations and learn from your experience how you want to meet the next moment. Suzuki Roshi emphasized how to make a right effort without getting caught in gaining mind. So it gets down to this point of, it gets down to, I don't know what words to put on it. Our old, our old favorite standbys are form and emptiness. Where do these meet? Do they meet? Can you find that spot? Is there that spot? Where can you live with that? There is an old sin story that I want to recite, which I, I like a lot. It's uh, case 21 from the Shoyuroku. It's entitled, Yun Sweeps the Ground. And uh, it's very simple. <clears throat> One, sort of on the surface. <laughs> One day, Yun Yang was sweeping the ground, which is something we all do. They, they say that the word ground is, references the mind. But in any case, Yun Yang was sweeping the ground. He could have been washing the dishes, doing the laundry, reconciling his checkbook. Involved in a hundred different activities that we all do constantly every day. Washing our face, using the toilet, The other character in this story is Dao Wu. Dao Wu and Yun Yun were um, Dharma brothers who knew each other intimately for many years. Yun Yun transmitted Dharma to Dungshan, the founder of a subtle school in, in China. But in any case, Yun Dao Wu was present. And uh, we said, too busy, too busy. Isn't that the truth? How can you escape it? Maybe you can't. But Yun Yang said, too busy. I mean, Dao Wu said, too busy, but 
Maybe Dao Wu was being too busy observing his friend. Yun Yang said in reply, you should know there is someone who is not busy. Whoa, who's that? Is that the enlightened one who's already enlightened, but could use a little improvement? The one who is not busy? Yun Yang pushes back and Dawu says, in that case, there must be a second moon, meaning there must be a second perfect reality out there. Implying that Yun Yang is maybe taking a dualistic attitude, saying it's okay for me to be busy because there's also someone who's not busy. But is that just theoretical? So in reply, Yun Yang says, holds up his broom and says, which moon is this? And uh, Dawu walks away. So it comes to a place where you have to stand up and take whatever position you have and celebrate that. If there is a unity of busy and one who is not busy, but it has to be enacted has to be practiced. So in encountering the precepts and trying to figure out how can I possibly practice this precept, you have to find that spot. I vow to take what is not, I vow not to take what is not given. How many ways do we take without recognizing whether or not something is given or not? How can we use this lens to examine our behavior in a way in which we, in a way in which benefits everyone, clears the way for the appearance of one who is not busy? So in the ceremony, we make space for the person who is not busy. We make space for the ordinaries to show up completely and to be given completely, to be given the precepts completely. And we celebrate the Buddhist teaching, the Buddhist precepts as a way of helping ourselves and others wake up 
to what we do. So I have not used very much time, as far as I can tell. But there may be questions about the ceremony or anything else I've said, which I would make space for now. And uh, if uh, anyone else on Zoom land has a question, Uh, Mary Beth, this is Tech Host, and she'll let me know if anyone has a question or wants to say anything. And I would invite Hoson to say anything he wishes to say at this point. Thank you. I think that what leaps out to me from something you said is a point that that I that I have often made uh, and that I feel, uh, which is. Uh, in this ceremony, the precepts are transmitted to us uh, in a thoroughgoing way, and uh, there's something uh, powerful about the fact that, as you said, we can't give them back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's something, there's some internal uh, shift. Uh, an essential shift within us receiving these precepts directly that uh, it changes the the weight of our thoughts, words, and actions. Mm -hmm. uh, having received them, even though we can't we can't keep these precepts, which is the point I would make that you can't do them perfectly, just like you can't sew the rakasu according to some abstract perfect ability. Neither can we keep the precepts that way, and yet something internally is really, it's really shifted. Yes, and I think that people who have received the precepts uh, since that. Even if we can't always articulate. Thank you for unpacking that. Uh, yes, Rishi. Thank you for a really beautiful and deep talk, Peter. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thank you. I wanted, I, there's something else in your talk that really caught me uh, or really connected for me, which was this place where form and emptiness meet. And I'm thinking about how you live in a body. We all do, but I'm thinking about your experience. You live in a body that's always really changing mm -hmm. moment to moment. You have to live in that body and yes. act in that body like you did in this talk today. Could you say more about that place where those two meet and how you live there? Well, uh... Should see if people could hear people hear that online. No, no. Can you hear that in the room? No. Could people not hear that? No. So. So nobody could hear it. No. Should I read it again, or would you like to? I'll try, and then you can correct me. Never. So Ryushin asked, um, 
thanking me for my talk and asked if I would say something about how it is to live in my body, in a body which is changing perceptively. Um, and, uh, you know, we all know that our bodies are changing. Some of us have a more direct experience of that on a daily basis than others. Um, and some of us, uh, including myself, um, have a different kind of, I've been thinking a lot about Rishi's uh, talk of last week about right effort and how um, making an effort to show up uh, well, let's see, let's put it a different way. Um, I'm needing to make a different kind of effort, a uh, different quality of effort that has to do with um, leaping clear of my old habits of thinking. Um, because my old habits of thinking are what determine how I move and how I experience my body. And, um, and so, uh, because my disability involves not being able to uh, accurately judge or initiate large movements, walking, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, I have to think big. <laughs> well, that's one example of um, of consciously changing my relationship with my body. And um, that works pretty well, except when it doesn't. But it's, um, it's an interesting uh, exercise in paying attention to um, habitual thinking, habitual emotions. Does that address what you were written? Yes, in part. I'm wondering if I could ask a follow-up question. Sure. You also talked about how important impermanence is. Yes. And I'm thinking about my experiences where I see lots of people live in a body and come to the end of their life. Mm -hmm. And there's a way of being with that that sometimes it's where life really happens. Yes. I would say. I'm wondering if you could unpack that a little bit in terms of what you were talking about. Well, it's um, raises a question of how do you adapt to your experience of change? And when your experience of change becomes more of an ongoing project, a, you know, taking up more and more of your time. Uh, you do make an adaptation that kind of brings you closer to the moment you're in. And that's all I can say right now. Yeah. Thank you. Jerry. Thank you for your wisdom. Um, I 
wonder if you would comment on the role of people receiving a lineage document um, with their name on sure. the document and the, and the relationship of the ceremony to um, the ancestors, the presence of the ancestors. Yes. Yes, thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. Could people try, when you're asking a question, Peter has set a wonderful, quiet tone to this talk, <laughs> but we should try to project so, so people here uh, online can hear. Okay, I've got the advantage of having a microphone, so I'm not needing to project as much as I should. But thank you, Jerry. And um, again, that's another facet, another layer, another way in which the precepts and transmission of the precepts is about relationship. It's like it brings you into receiving the precepts and the lineage document, brings you into relationship with the lineage, the people who have devoted their lives to making this teaching accessible, have transmitted it to others. And um, it's important to, when we say, live for the benefit of all beings, that includes those beings as well in our lineage. And, um, and without the transmission of that teaching, where would we be now? So it's, it's tremendously important to acknowledge and to um, share in that relationship and to give back in a sense to those who have given to us through their devotion. Does that address yes. what you wrote up? Thank you. Just one, but, but also I, I think um, the role, I'm sorry. <laughs> but the, the fact that, that we are now in that lineage. Yes. When we receive the paper with our name on it. Yes, that's true. That Thanks for mentioning that. That Yoruni's name appears on that lineage paper at the end, which is also the beginning. There's a, a line which connects all the written names on the lineage paper in red called the bloodline. And from the ordinee, it goes back to Buddha. Yes. Hi, Peter. Thank you so much. Hi, Sue. Beautiful, clear talk. And um, the question I have about Dukai is that you know it's it's for the ordinaries there, uh, and they are taking getting their rakasus, taking the precepts. There are people sitting around in the room, some of whom have rakasus and have done Dukai, some of whom do not. And could you say something about the way in which we don't want this to be a sort of ceremony that makes a division between those who've done it and those who haven't, but rather, how is it that the people who are receiving the precepts are 
are doing it for everybody and we're all doing it together whether we have done it before or not so somehow it's it was like to experience the way in which it's a a gift to everyone and no one needs to feel left out can you say something more yes thank you again it's about relationship it's about the joy of living for the benefit of all beings. It's about the gratitude I feel towards the word knees for having made this effort for everyone. And knowing that um, in this particular circumstance, um, I feel gratitude for for the fact that this effort is being made and that people are showing up to share in the event, whether or not they are participating as ordinees, they are participating as Sangha members. It's a Sangha event. And uh, I don't know if that addresses the thing that we're bringing up. But it's That's a, helpful. Thank you. Uh, oh, if someone's waving at me, it's Mary Beth. <laughs> yes. Um, thank you, Peter. Um, just a couple of things. First, Kabir put in the message. He estimates fifteen hundred stitches. <laughs> That's a lot of rabbit holes. You can avoid. <laughs> yes. And then, secondly, I just want to thank you because you just reminded me so much of the great joy I had when I went through Jukai. And, you know, I, I feel, I felt then that it was an indelible thing. I didn't know what it meant exactly. <laughs> I still don't know what it means exactly, but I feel such joy to make this commitment. And uh, I, I just, I wanna thank you for reminding me of that. Sure. Yeah, there's nothing more joyful than making a commitment to an impossible task. <laughs> I was once at a session early in my experience of practice uh, in San Francisco. Liz might have been there at the same time, I can't remember. But um, there were a number of Japanese priests, uh, I think Son Roshi, and another priest named Taisan. And um, they, they, they talked at some point. And um, Taishan sung his favorite song, belted it out, The Impossible Dream, <laughs> which I will not do. Uh, Dean. Thank you, Peter. Um, I was just talking before I got here today to someone about making, she's talking about wanting, she started a meditation class with someone. Uh, and um, I talked to her and I said, well, 
that I said, one of the really important things is you make a commitment to it. Even if you can't do it, you make a commitment and out of that commitment and that sort of persistent failure to meet that commitment, we learn something. I said, I don't exactly know why or how. And in listening to you, I realized that's exactly what we're doing with the precepts. We're making a commitment to something that's pretty impossible to get right. So I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about why it is making a commitment to something that, because we're human, we likely cannot get exactly perfect. What is it about that commitment, making it, that is so enriching to our mm. lives, especially in this practice? It changes your relationship to the thing you're doing. It changes it utterly. It makes it worthwhile. I mean, I don't know, that's, that's a funny way to say it. But, <laughs> um, but it shifts something in you. So, It's, it, it, it makes it possible for it not to matter so much what you think is going on, what your judgment about how you're doing is. You're just going to do it. There's that, 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 that aspect is present. So there's more possible, it's possible to have more joy in it, in the activity, or whatever that might be, whether it's zazen or practice, study or something. Thank you. How are we doing on time, somebody? Well, uh, we have time. It's ten after. If you want to take a few more questions, sure. Yes, Hannah. You talked about thinking big. Can you talk more about that? Oh, that's I just a, I need a lesson in thinking big. Oh, no, I'm not so sure you do. <laughs> but, but anyway, what I'm talking about is something rather literal, uh, having to do with uh, bodily motions. My neurologist said you should go and do exercises that involve large limb movements. So I I took up swimming again, and um, I was interested to see if I could swim a couple of lengths of the pool without drowning, which was a little bit of a feat. But um, because I used to swim regularly, and it used to be sort of a great uh, sort of exercise event. But um, now it's like uh, I've got to do the stroke completely. Or I can't even I can't even stay in the water. I mean, it's, it's not good. Or I have to step forward 
in, a, in, a, in a normal size, in, in a normal gait, uh, or else I start to go into stutter, 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 trip and fall on my face, which I haven't done. Which, but anyway, it's just, it's that um, it's that kind of disability where you have to overcompensate. You seem like it seems like over, it's, it's actually a different kind of thing. It's actually a it's like taking charge in a new way. So I don't know if that addresses what you're what you're interested in. Well, I think I need to take charge of my mind in a new way as I'm forgetting things. Well, sometimes you have to allow yourself to, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a fine balance, I would say. I mean, I, I just, um, to me, um, there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of effort required again to I don't know learning how to take charge of your life is something that uh, all of us experience a lot as we were younger and um, I can see that uh, we share some of the same challenges today Ross. Thank you, Peter. Um, I was taken by when you, the word shift around the precepts when the students take precepts. And when I came to practice, it was all about my self-centeredness and my dissatisfaction. And then uh, when I was ordained, uh, I didn't know it then, but hearing it today goes back all those years that I can now feel there's a shift in relationship, not so much to myself, but to others that was not there before. Mm -hmm. And so that this transformation of relationship between self and other took decades and decades. And uh, hearing it today is a wake up to what Sojin was trying to uh, tell me all those years. So thank you for hearing the lineage and transmitting it today. And um, Birthing, birthing more baby Buddhas in a few hours. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I see now the striker is up, so let's do it. Okay.